Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are looking at Chapter 6 of Mockingjay. So Chris, can you give us a recap? So Katniss is angry that Hamish is back. but a Grr, gr- sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just doing sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> but she agrees with the statement that her staged propo is unusable. After he convinces command of the same, Hamish leads a meeting of leaders and community members from various districts, where he asks for examples where Katniss genuinely moved people. Aww. (laughs) Sorry. The examples are all things that came from Katniss herself, so the discussion ends with a new plan for Katniss to be sent out into the field, in the least (gasps) possible danger, so that she can be filmed in real-life circumstances. Hamish and Katniss have a private moment where they both accept their blame for not saving PETA. Poor PETA! Easing the tension a bit so they can work together. Katniss gets outfitted with her special armor and weaponry, then convinces an agitated Finnick to focus on the new trident beady made for him, which brings back some of his old confidence and playfulness. She talk- <laughs> That's totally his playfulness. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the first thing I think <laughs> She talks with Boggs on the way to the hangar about the history of District 13 and their isolation, coming around on him as she gets to know him. On the way to their mission in District 8, Plutarch lays out the status of the war, the plans for a new Republican government afterwards, and the final tool poisonous hemlock pills that we concealed on Katniss's outfit. Great Foley work, babe. Thanks. <laughs> it's just something I felt like doing right now. <laughs> so you're welcome. So when we go into our first section, which is our striking moments. So what is kind of standing out to you or something you noticed for the first time in this read-through of this chapter? Yeah, one thing that stood out to me because of this process of us talking about the books and and going through them is how Katniss mentions that everyone took different meanings from her moment with the berries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. And how that kind of mirrors our own different perspectives on things and mm-hmm. how we and our listeners who are involved with us on the Patreon and our live Zoom meetings we all kind of bring our own thoughts and ideas, our own readings of things, and how things are meaningful for us in very specific ways. And Katniss is essentially seeing the same thing with her own actions within the narrative, which I think is really important. Because for a story that is all about Katniss being a symbol, that's never going to be a clear-cut thing. A symbol never just means one thing. And so I appreciate how the narrative brings in these different perspectives and these different meanings and it shows how the moment can be powerful in different ways but that doesn't stop it from being powerful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. definitely and i think another great thing it shows is that it doesn't have to just be one of those things mm-hmm. like she mentioned different ways that people were seeing it love for PETA. refusal to give in under impossible odds defiance of the capital. Like, I think it's all of those things for her. Yeah, just boiling it down to one motivation is not always how humans are. Absolutely. Yeah. Another moment that stood out to me was a quote from Katniss's internal monologue when she's talking with Plutarch about the Republic and the people who came before. <laughs> oh, that's so great. She thinks, Clearly, they didn't care about what would happen to the people who came after them. 
which obviously we could talk about this at length in the touch point, but it just was <laughs> a line that I didn't remember. And it just like totally struck me on this read through as mm. like such an important line for the thesis of the series yeah. that society fails when we don't think about the people who come after us, how the hunger games or is... even the people who are now totally. Yeah. And the hunger games, you know, in, targeting children is a way of bringing violence to those who are coming after us and Mm -hmm. so many of our decisions in the world today are bringing violence both direct and indirect violence to the people who are coming after us so i just i really really loved that quote in this read through absolutely i love that it comes right after plutarch's like well republics worked before and Mm -hmm. i'm like that's cute plutarch (laughs) it's cute you think that this worked and then she's just thinking Frankly, I don't think our ancestors are anything to brag about. I'm like, yes, this is maybe one of the the best several sentences in the book of just, you know, they left us in this state yeah, with wars and a broken planet. It's just so damning of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Good job, Suzanne Collins. <laughs> <laughs> the last moment I wanted to talk about was where Katniss takes a long time to even look at Hamish. Like, she'll look in the reflections instead mm-hmm. to see him, which is just so petulant, which, if I had read this when I was her age, I probably would have been annoyed with. But at this point, I'm just like, yeah, because she's a child. Like, because she's still, I guess, 18 at this point, maybe? 17, 17 still. Yeah, um, Still not mature, you know? And that's not a slight, but it does explain, yeah, People at that age who are frustrated with adults can act out and can be dramatic in the ways that they're trying to communicate their upset feelings. And she has very good reasons to be upset. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like even I, like, have the inclination to not look at people when I'm upset about when I'm upset with them. Interesting. Because it's like, it's just hard to make eye contact with someone without addressing the problems. Mm. And if you can't address the problems or you can't in the moment, it's just like difficult to look at them. Yeah. I get, I can get that. Maybe that's, that's just our personalities because I can't look at someone when they're upset with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, 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 It's just, I think, an an interesting moment. Well, and I think also it's like she shouldn't have to acknowledge him until he comes and apologizes for being the worst mentor. Totally. (laughs) Like, how do you do this to a person? Gaslighting her, lying to her, manipulating her. Yeah. Not coming and telling her what was going on even after everything went down. You know, her having to stumble upon it. No, you should go and apologize to her. Yeah. She does have the moral high ground here, Hamish. <laughs> well, what are your striking moments? One thing that I thought was really sweet is when Beatty reaches over and pats Katniss's hand mm. and when he says, so we should just leave you alone, right? And it's just like, I think we don't really, or I don't generally read Beatty as being very affectionate or sweet and thoughtful because I think of, the very calculated way he communicates a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and thinks but 
between this and him asking how Finnick was doing and even when they were in the arena him saying that she was doing a good job helping heal him you know with when since he had gotten stabbed in the back yeah. and i think he is quite encouraging and thoughtful I, I kind of wonder if he's maybe a little more people motivated than we would think about him being totally um, yeah and so yeah that was just a, a sweet moment I was also struck by when Boggs just so casually says after we'd overthrown and executed the Capitol's people. Mm. I was just like, oh wow, I guess they executed everyone Mm -hmm. who had been there um, at the time of of the First War. Yeah, that's that's something. Yeah, yeah, that must have been a, uh, a fraught time. What do you do when you are transitioning to a system where you have limited resources including people and yet you also need trust or loyalty or which they seem to value very highly um and the new hierarchy that they're building and it seems like a pretty symbolic gesture to execute them all which is awful but um totally makes sense for 13 yeah and i mean what does it mean for in, I mean, if you weren't a peacekeeper and you were from the capital and you had to work in District 13, probably that means that you weren't super privileged in the capital because who wants to not be in the capital, right? It's, it's seen as a punishment to go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so we don't even know how much choice the people who, who were there had in being there. And then it's just like, oh, yeah. They're all executed. <laughs> yeah. And those who are there had to be specialized, mm-hmm. you know, in technological aspects, in nuclear weaponry, in flying the the aircraft, you know, all these other kinds of things. These are special skills, which Boggs even mentions. Not everyone knew how to fly afterwards. Yeah. So it yeah, was. It doesn't a... even seem the smartest exactly. thing to do, setting aside ethics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the last thing I was kind of thinking about is when Katniss says, alone, I can't be the Mockingjay. I think on one hand, it's her again kind of underestimating herself Mm. because she's already been the spark Mm -hmm. and she's already chosen to do a lot of these inflammatory acts that have helped this entire rebellion. But... On the other hand, I think it also shows a lot of wisdom because so often people overestimate the actions of single people mm-hmm. and without really acknowledging everything that went into that. Because even when we look at the moment with the burial of Rue, she's thinking about Gail raging against the Capitol. She's thinking about what Pete has said about not wanting to be a piece in their games and to show them they don't own her or him. And so I think all of these different things are coming together. I mean, and that's all how humans are. None of us are raised in a vacuum. And so we are all influenced and affected by others. And even the leaders of movements, the most symbolic things, all have a lot of people involved in that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. 
What do we move into our section from another point of view? This is where we look at a perspective other than Katniss's. Who do you have? I was thinking about what Coin was experiencing during the meeting. Mm. Because for one, it's a meeting that was called by Hamish, and the people who were there were invited by Hamish. And so I can imagine her seeing all these people in command in this meeting and being wary of it. Because for one, it invites more chaos. For two, it can disrupt the kind of hierarchy that not only is what 13 runs by, but which places her at the top. Mm-hmm. And third, it could, I imagine, possibly leak information, secrets. You know, maybe there are maps, there are holograms, there are whatever around in the command room that she wouldn't want just anyone to be able to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I can just imagine her already being wary at the beginning of the meeting as more people are coming in that don't typically have a space in command. And then building off of that, I can see her being super exasperated with Katniss after she sees the propo. <laughs> I agreed to your terms, and then this is what you give exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs> Everything they did, they rescued her, they healed her. Not they... that it's Katniss's fault with yeah. what she was given to work with. True, but, but yes. I mean, it sounds like her delivery is also bad. That the obviously the writing was terrible. There's if her only performance so is much so you bad, can do. Too, you know, it's just it's. Natalie certainly... Portman couldn't pull off those lines in episode two. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just I think about Coin, who you know isn't necessarily charismatic in a Finnick kind of way, but has enough presence and leadership to be able to give speeches easily, rise to power, and so forth. And so seeing someone who is coming at her with demands, who Mm -hmm. the rebellion is relying on as a symbol, who is so unreliable, and who, yeah, is is asking for things and then not delivering, I can really imagine her being pretty, pretty upset about it. And then I was also wondering, you know, when thinking through that scene in her perspective and the plan to go to District 8 came up, I started thinking about how she was probably considering, okay, so what are the risks involved with this, both to Katniss, who now, again, we put all these resources and time into, but also to the teams that go with her and to command if she gets captured and and all these other kinds of things but also what resources will be needed to make this new mission. Um, You know, what, not just weapons and and things like that, but if she's sending her number two in Boggs out with Katniss, that is someone who's not in command there with her, uh, who's not doing the other missions that they have to do. Personnel, weaponry, the propo team, the hovercrafts they're using, all of these are going to a very specific mission that, you know, in a tightly resource-strapped community like District 13 would be a, a issue. And, and it started making me think of, again about how I can see why Coin would become the leader of District 13. Because I can see her, you know, in trying to read this through that perspective, I can imagine her as a character who is 
hyper responsible and aware of the use of resources and how important that is. Uh, I just I remember when I used to be in student government stuff and there would be people in committees who had no idea how committees are run, how budgets work, just like be <laughs> super irresponsible. And it we should do really this. Difficult. It's like, uh... We can't, you know, or <laughs> where the, that would look really bad. Or, exactly. Yeah. So having people in leadership positions that have that kind of responsible outlook in regards to resources, I think is really, really useful for organizations, institutions, um, and societies. And I can imagine why someone like that would be pushed into a leadership position in a place like District 13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What POV did you want to talk about? Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring her up in, in relation to the beginning of this meeting, because I was also thinking about Fulvia. Mm. And her probably being really annoyed at Hamish mm. because suddenly this man's coming in and taking over after she's put a lot of work in. And sure, she only knows the capital's perspective, which isn't necessarily helpful in this scenario, but she still has skills mm-hmm. that he does not have when it comes to production and lighting and you know things like that totally we already know that she's frustrated with the lack of resources in in 13 yeah so i can definitely see that and it's just like there's no acknowledgement to the work that she has done and put in to to try to make this work it's not like she alone wrote that line either you know and trying to work with someone who is not good at performing in this way you know it just it would be very frustrating and I imagine she feels very undermined and like people have a skewed perspective of her and her skill set now which yeah would be incredibly frustrating particularly when I'm sure you're already seen as suspect in mm-hmm. in a district where you're an outsider and you have had the privilege that they haven't so yeah i i was just kind of feeling even though <laughs> i don't think she's a great person she clearly is not uh sensitive she clearly has very specific sort of ideas on standards of beauty and and image and things like that but that doesn't mean that it's not yeah exasperating yeah to to be in that situation and like suddenly demoted by no one Mm -hmm. especially after you've given up everything yeah 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 granted there's also the side of what she and plutarch should have been doing is what hamish did here bringing in people to look at this who are not just command, who are not just from the Capitol and whoever is in the leadership in District 13. You need, you know, having Dalton there, great idea. Somebody, the only other person that they have is not from 13 or 12 at the Capitol. And also some people from District 12 just to see how these things are received. And that's very commonly not done, you know, where it's like the people at the top are making these decisions and they're super privileged and they're making decisions that are affecting people who are just not in that same 
place in society or in life and they're just so out of touch (laughs) totally yeah that actually brings me to my first touch point oh cool I do have another perspective I was thinking about. Okay, then go ahead. And then we'll, we'll go back to it. I was really thinking about Cinna and mm. him designing the Mockingjay outfit for Katniss and adding a suicide pill pocket. <laughs> that just must be so sad yeah. and such a somber piece of what he's doing. Because he knows, and probably another reason that he really wanted her to make the decision for herself, because he knows this is putting her in even more danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she'll she'll be the target. Yeah, just I don't know. I was kind of imagining him in creating this outfit that is both impressive looking and has all the utility that he could manage and mm-hmm. it just being almost a process of grieving as he's doing it because when he was making these he probably knew that he would be killed for the transforming Mockingjay dress from the interviews and so he would know that he's not going to be there for Katniss mm-hmm. as she undertakes this incredibly difficult no one should have to have this burden on them role so it being like this pocket showing the seriousness that he knows is involved with this and also it being in a way his last act of support for her that if it comes to it she won't be tortured before she dies yeah i was thinking about that too because plutarch mentioned the nightlock as a protection for the rebellion that they're all too important to be able to fall into the capital's hands now Mm -hmm. and that it's a way of protecting the secrets and strategies they have but i definitely saw Cinna's decision to add that in as something that is supporting katniss it's supporting her choice to if she wants to kill herself rather than be tortured by the capital in ways that he knows they are capable of. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It was built into her outfit. Everyone else doesn't get an outfit with that built in. Sure, they, they have them available, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think. Sure, there's the added benefit of other people can use this, but yeah, I think I think it definitely was, particularly for her as well. And it's so sad to think about he didn't have a chance to use it himself, mm-hmm. but he took care of her. Yeah. Oh, Senna. Well, on that sad note, <laughs> let's go into more sad things. Touch points. Our fascinating and horrible section about things that are happening in this book that we see happening in our world as well. Yeah, so to continue on to your point from before, I was definitely struck, especially after our most recent conversations about the kind of patronizing nature of District 13 and the Capitol and the Capitol rebels, um, how Hamish, his first action is to invite participants from every district that he can Mm -hmm. uh, with a wealth of different perspectives and status levels and and all sorts of other kinds of things. So he's not doing that kind of top-down patronizing view that, that you were talking about. And it's showing how 
you know, I think it, it, it's interesting how it connects to the later conversation about the Republic, because Hamish is already being more democratic in his actions, in his tactics, mm. than District 13 or the Capitol Rebels have been. Yeah. They, sure, maybe their plan is to start this Republic afterwards, but the methods they're using so far, the, the paradigm that they have, is not a democratic one. It's a hierarchical one. Yeah, it just, I think, is a, a really important thing to, to mention. When I was thinking about how this can relate to our society, it reminded me of the progressive candidates like Bernie, or I think AOC, who refuse to take PAC donations. Mm-hmm. We have a quote-unquote democratic system, but there's <laughs> limits to democracy, as we all know. Um, I think Stacey Abrams is another great example of someone who is working with communities, trying to be as democratic as possible in the way that they campaign, in the way that they try to gain power and therefore utilize that power because they're then not beholden to the donors that they got, which represent a small minority that has a vast majority of the power, mm-hmm. um, being typically wealthy and corporate donors that are giving to these PACs. So, yeah, I think that it's a really admirable and important distinction to see those who promise change but are willing to do what it takes to get to the place of power to make that change, and those who refuse to compromise as they try to get to that place of power. Because mm-hmm. I think the, the latter are showing more integrity and commitment to the ideals that they are running on. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I only would have hope for any change happening when people are talking about change and they're actually taking a harder route for themselves to enact that even in their own campaign versus we talk about change and things that need to happen. But if you're still getting millions of dollars donated by the wealthiest corporations, I'm not convinced at all that you'll actually do what's needed on the, the level of change that we need. It also, you know, District 13 and the Capitol, they don't have the same stakes in this as the districts do. Mm-hmm. because they are the ones who have suffered all of this time, the past 75 years, and they are the ones taking the brunt of the war. Mm-hmm. People in District 13 are being killed right now because of this war. So the people who this is supposed to inspire so that they can continue to die so that this can succeed should definitely have more input than... Yeah those who are privileged enough to not have to really have their life on the line. Absolutely. And they're not even being considered. There's not Mm -hmm. even the thought process. Even awful corporations in in our society will put together focus groups of (laughs) the kinds of people. So they can figure out how to make more money. Exactly. But yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, but here they're literally just being like, we know everything that we need to do for this. And that is... To end our hunger for justice, you know, like it's <laughs> and to dare. Yeah, Don't forget about exactly. that part. <laughs> oh, they dared. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a it's just a really important moment, and it, it's a really smart on Suzanne Collins' part to have that coming from someone from the districts, Absolutely. and not just the districts. You know, District Two would not be the same as coming from someone from District Twelve, who, like Hamish, has 
been so exploited by the Capitol. Yeah. And, and who's come from even the bottom of District 12, because it's the same chapter that Katniss mentions his sea mice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Another brief touch one I had that connected to something in my own life was how Boggs's humor makes him more likable to Katniss. How she decides that she's going to go ahead and like him after he makes a joke. That's definitely, that's something that happened to me in middle school, where someone who became my best friend moved to our town when we were middle school. He kind of joined the group, and I think at first I was kind of like, well, I'm the funny one in the, in the group. I don't want anyone to... <laughs> to undermine that or anything like that you know yep, dumb 11 year old ideas humor. i'm hilarious okay <laughs> i thought at first you were gonna bring and up and have been since that, i was 11 that, not before no that's really when it started that's when <laughs> <Okay>. it clicked <laughs> those were your golden years yeah absolutely <laughs> but to get back to my story <laughs> to your real point yeah mm-hmm. uh so for probably a couple of weeks or so i was kind of like dodgy about this person and then actually i think it was my birthday party he came and he wrote me a birthday card and he included a a self-deprecating joke in it that i did find genuinely hilarious (laughs) and i do remember being like okay all right i had the exact same thing i I, i'll go ahead and like my friend (laughs) and afterwards yeah i guess i'll like this person i invited to my birthday party (laughs) for a few years uh he was my best friend he was my closest friend so uh that's cute yeah yeah, uh, i i I get it and it's you know i think important to to think about how humor can bring people together in that way absolutely uh can make building those relationships a lot easier and especially when situations are bleak yeah you know humor can just add a lot of joy and levity when otherwise things would just be crushing. <laughs> yeah. The last touch point I had is the conversation between Plutarch and Katniss about why people become peacekeepers. Yeah. And how peacekeepers are made up both of capital citizens and District 2 citizens. And how there are a number of different reasons why someone might join up into the peacekeepers, which he mentions is a 20-year-long commitment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them mirror the same reasons why people join police or military in our society. You know, people can do so to tr- because they think it's a way to escape poverty, to gain new opportunities. People can do so to escape punishment, uh, which doesn't really track the same way with us in modern times, but it has historically. And then people can do so, so for cultural reasons. They have a belief in loyalty or honor to their community, their state you know, what have you. Because they believe the we dare and hunger for <laughs> exactly. justice propaganda. Yeah. Uh, or there's just a military culture. You know, there's many yeah, families that every person in that family will enlist in the military when they that's come of age. so baffling. Um, that is not a Los Angeles <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it, it was an interesting moment because, for one, Katniss was thinking about how District 2 people would, you know, why they'd choose to become peacekeepers. And I think I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but in the early 20th century, there were movements to end police brutality, gasp, uh, and in particular police brutality against communities of color. And one of the most popular tactics by community organizers was to 
pass laws, regulations, policies that encouraged the hiring of officers of color. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's some interesting studies and historical accounts of these officers who are kind of meant to go as a representative of their community, but more often than not, ultimately get subsumed into the police culture. And <laughs> I love how you said that when in my mind I finished that sentence with, they're corrupted in the process. <laughs> I mean, essentially, yeah, because the instances of police brutality did not go down. And mm-hmm. those officers were at times involved in them. And so, yeah, District 2 clearly has its own special relationship with the capital. Uh, they have a great deal of privilege compared to the other districts. But even for a district like that, that is still second class compared to the capital, it totally makes sense why they could develop this culture and these ideas around becoming a peacekeeper to oppress other districts because it's a way of maintaining their own status or their own Mm -hmm. ideologies. Yeah. So what are your touch points? Yeah, so one kind of talking about the same part of this chapter for the reasons that people enter the peacekeepers, I had forgotten and found it really interesting that many people are swamped in debt in the capital Mm. and that leads some of them to enlist. So I was looking up some things about debt in the United States. Oh, that does not sound fun. <laughs> Never a good idea. No. Uh, so apparently around 10% of Americans' income per month goes towards non-mortgage debts. And obviously that's an average uh-huh. because there are plenty of people who are wealthy enough that they never need to be in debt. And there are other people like Gen Z, ages 18 to 23 in this one report I was looking at, who have an average of $16,000 in debt, which I assume is mostly or a lot due to student loans, Mm -hmm. which have increased by about 12% since 2019, because that's lovely. Yeah, costs of tuition and all those continue to rise, Mm -hmm. outstreaking even inflation. Yep. And then, obviously, people get into debt because of medical mm-hmm. reasons. This actually happened to my aunt. She didn't have a job for a bit of time, and during that time, she didn't have health insurance. And it just happened to be that she tripped and fell, broke her arm, and then she was in debt for the rest of her life mm-hmm. uh, until she died. And that's just preposterous because she had had savings and it was just gone there was there was nothing she could do or there's also people that have like a five thousand dollar deductible so even though they have health insurance now especially now that it's more you know so much more available through the affordable care act but that doesn't mean that you have five thousand dollars just laying around that you can pay and so uh, that could send you into debt And obviously, I mean, there are some people who would be able to live fine, but they are just living above their means for status or, you know, whatever it is. But more often than not, I would assume it's because capitalism is crushing us all. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking about the privilege of getting into debt Mm. because people in the capital can get into debt, whereas people in the districts cannot 
they starve to death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are plenty of people in our society who couldn't even get into credit card debt because they can't get a credit card. Right. Because they lack enough income or credit scores, which are, you know, a sham, or they don't have a social security number, which means unlike people who do have a credit card, that if they needed some sort of scheduled medical procedure that they couldn't afford in cash, they could put it on that card and then, you know, have to be in debt that way, but they could still get that medical procedure. Yeah. If they're laid off, they can maybe survive for a month or two more because mm -hmm. they have this to fall back on. Without maybe getting evicted or whatever, because they can put their grocery and their internet and, you know, these other things that they need on their credit card. And so there's that. But then also, if we look globally, (laughs) it's even worse because around 25,000 people die every day due to starvation or health conditions caused by malnutrition. An example that very much has been on my mind is Myanmar. Since the coup happened at basically the beginning of the pandemic, and one of my best friends is there, and, you know, he'll tell me about, yeah, the banks just, you never know if you're going to be able to get money out of the bank. And even so, it's only small amounts of money. And you might get there and they're closed because they ran out that day people are starving. It's estimated about 27 million people there are food insecure or need humanitarian assistance because of a really terrible (laughs) triple impact of one, pre-existing poverty, two, Mm COVID-19, and then three, the military coup. And the average retail price of basic food as of February of this year, was up by 27% compared to the year prior. Wow. And so it's, yeah, people are starving and they don't have the opportunity to even get into debt to continue surviving. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was just, I was kind of, I mean, debt is horrible, but in, in the context of this book and our world, there is still a very twisted privilege about it that not everybody has the ability to survive in the way that people who can get into debt can. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing I was thinking about, because you had asked me about previously, if I had looked up when Mm. we were introduced to Dalton, kind of looking where we get our things on the global scale. So the top three countries in the world for cattle and beef are the United States, Brazil, and Australia. Hmm. Unsurprisingly, the United States has the world's largest fed cattle industry and is also the world's largest consumer of beef, Mm -hmm. which is no surprise (laughs) since the U.S. is, you know, fine with both torture and climate change Mm -hmm. and also loves excess. (laughs) So... You know, there's something very American about this district Mm. or the fact that this district is required. It's not necessary. It's not helping anything, right, for the capital. It's just because they want to eat beef. And, you know, that's the same in our own world. Like, 
there are literally so many resources out there about the documented torture, the disastrous impacts on climate change, the effects on antibiotic resistant bacteria, and also literally how much protein a human needs to eat every day. Mm -hmm. And just none of those things are engaged with um, in, in this industry. And because we know all about that, like it's just unconscionable, but that's the U.S., isn't it? (laughs) And that's the capital, right? They're going to have this district. They're not using that land to raise food to feed the district so that those people aren't starving. They're using the land and probably getting crops from District 11 sent there so that they can feed it to these animals that are tortured until they're killed so that people in the capital can eat beef, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just very capital, it's very us, and so it's kind of hard when we're thinking about, you know, imagining him. Because even within that industry, at least what I could find and go super far into researching it, but it looked like it's still the majority are white workers. Mm -hmm. And when we do import, which is really weird because we're one of the leading exporters, but we still import some, whatever. Um, We usually get it from Canada and Mexico Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of... The information I would have about what District 10 could look like. And I also think it's really interesting, too, that we don't know well any of the characters that come from 10. But we do know that the boy from District 10 in Katniss's first Hunger Games, he was the one with the limp. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we could also maybe imagine he was injured Mm -hmm. through unsafe working environment. So, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if, is District 10 specifically cattle livestock? It's livestock, and I know he mentioned cattle. Got it. Yeah. Because I can imagine they also probably have sheep and other, other... Oh, I'm sure that they have other, even higher end (laughs) animals to eat. (laughs) Well, I mean, we could probably do a whole touch point on... How they probably use mutts for these kinds of things and genetically modified animals and plants and things like that. But, yes. This dish comes from a ostrich with an extra long neck. Exactly. Yeah, it's Gotta get as much neck as you can. <laughs> so bad, but also true. <laughs> well, and I also kind of love how it shows in his perspective, too, that he sees how these animals are treated Mm -hmm. even though you know they can feel they can think you know and everything they're just seen as serving a purpose Mm -hmm. for the benefit of those at the top and that's how he sees him and all of the refugees that come into district 13 so I, i i think that there's something there that really does make sense from his own perspective and also coming from working there in the dirt and grime and death seeing Katniss with a super made up face Mm -hmm. and he's just like wash her face 
also makes a lot of sense. But the last one I kind of want to talk about is the physical evidence of Katniss's trauma. Because after she washes her face off and takes the band that was covering her scar off, she thinks that she looks like her. Mm-hmm. That was really just bringing me to visible and invisible disabilities. Yeah. Because there are difficult things about both. Mm-hmm. I only know about it from my own experience and how it can be very difficult to have chronic fatigue and pain and insomnia and things like that and that's not something that anybody can see and so people see me and assume that I'm as able-bodied as they are Mm -hmm. and because I am more extroverted Oftentimes when I do finally get to interact with people since I'm home most of the time, it's like I have a little extra energy and I may be extremely fatigued later that night or the next day or I might be in more pain because I don't have the ability to move or lay down as much as I do at home. And so I think sometimes people can just be like, oh, she's fine, Mm -hmm. you know, and just not really understand that. How I interact with you in this one moment does not mean that's how I am perpetually. So yeah, it, it can be very difficult because people make assumptions or people want things or ask things of me based off their assumptions that maybe they wouldn't ask if they could see, mm-hmm. you know. They could see how some of my bones are out of place and things like that. So yeah, I was just, I was thinking about that. Obviously, there's the whole other side, which is, it's incredibly difficult if you can plainly see, because I do have the privilege of not having to engage with that Mm -hmm. in times when I don't want to, or with people who don't know me, that other people with disabilities that you can see visually don't have the privilege of passing. And so, yeah, I was just, I was thinking about that in her being all made up, having things covered, doesn't change the trauma she's been through. And then washing it all away, you see the dark circles under her eyes, you see how tired she is, you see the mangled tissue on her arm, and her feeling like that looks like her. Yeah, absolutely. Well, should we go on to our wonderments? One thing I was wondering about was... Whether Haymitch's wariness about the idea of a republic comes from anything kind of ideological, or whether it's just part of his disbelief that anything can work. You know, like, (laughs) is he just a cynic? I get you, Haymitch. (laughs) Or does he actually believe, like, this kind of government wouldn't work? Like, we need something more controlling, more, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, it is it, it is hard when, like, look at the education level in Penham. Totally. Because they have not taught them real education. Mm-hmm. They've taught them propaganda and a couple skills. Exactly. So, you know, it, it's something that we don't see a lot in our media. It, people advocating for authoritarian rule or non-democratic rule. It's not something that you see a lot. And... Oh, one of my besties and I advocated for that to each other all the time. We're like, 
we'd be okay with the dictator if we were running it. It'd be for a certain amount of time, and we wouldn't say it would be good, but it would be better for the world. <laughs> yeah, you'd be a philosopher king. <laughs> yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah. All would love me in a hundred years and despair now. <laughs> I do think it's interesting to imagine Hamish as someone who, yeah, thinks that it's just got to be the right person in charge, not that the system needs to become this kind of unmanageable democratic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that coming up just made me think about how you know, they clearly don't have the space to explore that, but kind of what, what, where that is, what that's coming from. Yeah, that is a really interesting question because then that also brings to mind how many of the people who are fighting this revolution are really thinking about what the government will be like after. Mm-hmm versus we know what we don't want. We don't want the Hunger Games to happen, and we don't want to be enslaved and starved. Yeah. Which, I mean, those are great reasons to have a revolution. Uh, But yeah, that is really interesting. I wonder how much people in the districts are really engaged in conversations about what they think should happen governmentally, uh, and how much do they even know what happens now? Exactly. Yeah. The other thing I was wondering, just because I'm me, was if <laughs> uh, Katniss took any pride in hearing everyone's comments during the meeting about how she moved them. If mm. there was any part of her that kind of saw herself in a more positive light because of that. I imagine not, because Katniss doesn't feed off attention like I do, so uh, <laughs> that would so have been your favorite thing ever. Oh, absolutely. But uh, <laughs> Next time we have a birthday party for you with people in person in 10 years from now, <laughs> should we bring a, a whiteboard and be like, let's all list times <laughs> that Chris has moved them? I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just, I think that's, you know. We don't really see much of her emotional or, or kind of her reaction to that or how it might affect her self-esteem or anything in the book. It's much more of her kind of having a detached, like, yeah, this was awful. And, yeah. and seeing more the logical aspects of Hamish's argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a part of me would hope that in the midst of her feeling so terrible with yeah her PTSD with her feeling so helpless to help PETA and like she failed him and things like that hopefully hearing those things coming from so many different people would at least give her a little boost that she hasn't just hurt people which I, I think she feels sometimes yeah what are you wondering about So you mentioned before about the peacekeepers, and I'm just wondering, why are their contracts 20 years long? And why are they not allowed to marry? Yeah. Because 20 years is a really long time. It is. Like, you would think that would just dissuade people from wanting to join. Yeah, I mean, it shows the dire straits that many of them are in in order mm-hmm. to, to choose to join up. Um, but, you know, at least for people in District 2, you know, even with the privilege that they have, uh, I imagine there's still people who have to take 
the Tesserae, you know, and that in of itself is another way of risking your life. And I mean, I guess it depends what age you can join. Yeah. Because if you can only join after the Hunger Games anyway, then that doesn't make a difference. But if you could enlist I'm just saying 16, it's another, another yeah. example of how uh, people, like, make hard decisions just for survival. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a, a really interesting question. You know, I was also kind of wondering about the no marriage part, if they wouldn't want people from the capital or people from District 2 to marry anyone in the other districts. I think that's exactly what it is. Because now you're creating these bonds with other people and you're probably you know you might police differently you also if you're from the capital might write home and share pictures or you know these different things with any of your family back there and that would have to start changing some people's perspectives yeah honestly now i'm thinking that maybe after the events of Songbird and Snakes, Snow made it a rule that <laughs> there wouldn't be marriage because he didn't want relationships between peacekeepers and people in the districts. Yeah. Because he, he's seen how that can lead to bad decision making. Yeah. Or, you know, dangerous things that he think about Sejanus. Totally. Yeah. Well, why don't we move into our intentions? What are you taking with you that you want to implement in your life? Thinking again about how Katniss is wary of bogs, but then comes around, it kind of just really struck me, I think, as a as a really good dynamic and something that, that clearly I had in, you know, in the past uh, in middle school, but... I, I think that I have become more guarded over time, mm. in large part because, you know, the world is awful. <laughs> but uh, I think I would like to challenge myself to give people Make more of a chance. Jokes. To give people more of a chance. <laughs> uh, <I> love you. <laughs> because maybe even if there's something that might put my walls up or make me cautious, it's possible that we could still get along and maybe humor can help out in that process. That's adorable because you're already so much less choosy than I am. <laughs> I mean, that's true, but I also, I mean, COVID, but I haven't really made friends in a pretty long time. Yeah. And I think that part of that is because the process of getting to know someone can so easily raise those walls up. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess I'm would like to just be more aware of that and more thoughtful about not having them up so high, uh, still being open to the development of those kinds of relationships. Hmm. Yeah. What's your intention? To stop making jokes about my jokes? <laughs> Never. <laughs> I think my intention is actually to maybe try to do more poetry about my invisible disabilities mm. because I did that quite a bit several years ago but haven't for a while and then been too COVID, busy writing love poems about me instead but you know COVID has very clearly revealed how horrifically ableist 
Americans are, even more so than we thought. Mm-hmm. And that's just like a constant bombardment and a constant reminder of how people really just don't care about people like me and our lives and well-beings and if we're disabled further. So I have a lot of anger mm-hmm. <laughs> and frustration about that. And it would probably be helpful to do some writing. Yeah, it sounds like a really good idea. I also kind of love how your intention is make friends. My intention is get out my anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we are who we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I think that will wrap up our discussion. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we are going to be reading two chapters next week. What? <gasps> Whoa! On this podcast? <laughs> I know. It's been rare recently. So that would be chapters seven and eight, where Katniss lectures the Capitol on fire safety. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you join us on Patreon so that you can become a supporter of the podcast. An online friend. Ooh, help (laughs) Chris's intention come true. Exactly. We'd also like to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Patreon, or Instagram. And don't forget, if you want to sign up for those Middle Earth guided creative retreats, find out more information at the link in the description and if you use code geekout in all caps you'll get 50% off thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week until then geek geek out. out